They used to have these massive events. The most famous photographers in the world would come through and teach. We had our own teaching school, beginners to professionals, and it created this environment in the store that was about learning. The, the store was an experience. It was like a photography journey. And not only that, when you're in that position where you're not trying to sell people, you're teaching them, your relationship with the customer completely changes. It's a trust relationship. If they're trying to take their money, everybody knows how to deal with that. But if you're teaching them something, they believe in you. And it changed the entire dynamic of the camera retail business. Essentially, every camera store that operates today operates with an education program and tries to create that environment in the store. And it basically revolutionized the way camera stores operate. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with the CEO of Lux Now, a risk taker, international speaker, turnaround and growth business consultant, life coach, and author of the number one bestseller, Leader of the Pack. He has a BA Mathematics from Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, New Brunswick, and an MA Mathematics from the University of Pennsylvania. His career has included being president and CEO of Unique Photo, US CEO of BB, contributing writer for Entrepreneur Media, has his own business consulting company, and is the CEO now of Lux Now. I'm honored and privileged to introduce to you a diehard New Jersey Devils hockey fan, an advanced auto racer with the BMW Club, a Panasonic Lumix luminary, created a social media network of over 11 million users, and is a successful single father of five. Matt Sweetwood. Matt, welcome to the show. Wow, Craig. I don't know. I think that's it. I don't have anything really to add to that. After that introduction, I might, I don't know if I, I don't, is that me we're talking about? <laughs> uh, it's Thanks very, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate being here. You're welcome. And, you know, I know you're based in Miami now, but where did it all start out for you? Where did you grow up and what kind of kept you busy outside of school? Yeah, I was a Jersey boy, as we say, and that's New Jersey in the United States. Uh, grew up there, you know, uh, went to school there. Rutgers is the State University of New Jersey. Started and ran my business there for 27, 28 years. Raised my five kids there. Did everything there. Made my way to the Supreme Court there in a really interesting kind of case. Um, had a crazy little divorce that happened there, and that's what my book, Leader of the Pack, is about. And then eventually I escaped there a few years ago, made it after I sold my business, made it to New York, and then found my way to Lux now here in the warm weather. And so for you, you know, what, what was kind of your big dreams and aspirations when you were a child? So for, I, for a while, I wanted to be a fireman, but my mom explained to me that that didn't pay enough money. Now, with all due respect to firemen, I'm, I'm not sure if that's true anymore. So she said, you could be a banker. Now, I, I didn't understand what that meant when I was a kid, 
but I, I somehow it involved money. And my parents were in business uh, their whole lives. And I, I don't know, I just got connected with business. And, you know, as a result, everything I did took me to business, even though my degrees in college were in mathematics, um, you know, which is really a thinking science, you know, it really teaches you to think. I think when I was a kid, you know, I wanted to be a professional athlete, but, you know, my five foot 10 frame just did not, um, and, you know, the genes weren't exactly there to allow that. And, you know, I just kind of found my way into business. And that's really where I think my natural talent is. I think many times you just kind of gravitate to what it is you do best. I'm best at running companies. That's kind of what I slip in, just able to do. So I think I ended up right where I'm supposed to be. Brilliant. And what was your first job? My first job was, I mean, realistically was as a child working for my parents. I mean, I used to, I was not the kid that would go out and play much, you know, not that I, I played my sports and stuff like that, but you know, summertime I would come and go work in the company in the warehouse and pack packages and do stuff and learn the business from a very, very young age. So for me, that was really my first job, you know, I, and I was responsible, you know, my dad was a depression era kind of guy that's 19, 30s for your audience out there and he was from that old school you know you worked you didn't come to you didn't come there and just you know play around so i i was working literally from the time i was five six years old always in a work environment yeah and what point did you you know obviously you you're into entrepreneur so you're obviously a creative innovative type person can take things you know the bull by the horn so to speak when did you first realize that you had leadership qualities? Um, I think it was when I got out of graduate school. You know, I, I went to work in the company. I had a, actually, I sort of went in, I got into the company by writing the programs, the computer programs that, you know, ran the company. And then as I started taking on more responsibility, I realized the company was not headed really in the right direction. And so you start to say, okay, you know, I, I know how to push it in this direction and we need to adjust here and we need to adjust there. And pretty soon, you know, you're kind of running the place. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so it's just sort of, a, I don't know, it just, I don't mean to sort of, I'm not trying to evade the question, but you just sort of realize it happens. You know, leadership is not, and I want to be serious about this. Leadership is not something that just magically happens. It happens through hard work through analyzing the situation, thinking ahead, being aggressive. There's all of those qualities that go in there. And as you start to do them and you learn and you build your own self-confidence, because a very important part of leadership is to be self-confident and be willing to take responsibility and be willing to fail, you know, fail fast and then move on. As a matter of fact, I just, I just had a discussion with partners in this business. And I, I basically said the statement that in order for us to be successful, we have to have eight out of 10 wins. So out of every 10 things you do, you have to win eight times. But that means you have to be willing to fail twice oh, yeah. and not and just take it and, you know, move on. And I think that's a really you know good way to, to look at it. And that's what I did. I, I jumped into the business and I said, OK, you know, let's do this. Let's fix this. And I reinvented this. I, I, actually, the word I like to use is I reimagined this business. It's a photographic business. It was originally a small photographic supply business. We sold film. For those of your audience that remember photographic film, we sold film and other photo accessories to small stores. And by the time we were done with this business, we were selling digital cameras 
to end users and photographers and had one of the most successful retail stores in America, reinvented the retail store model over those long period of time. So, and one of the things about being a leader, of course, is being willing to do what it takes to keep the business going. And in many cases, that means the business needs to be reimagined often. Because if you just sit there, competition, the marketplace technology, government, all sorts of things will just overtake you and you'll be done. And reimagine such a great word when you're working in a photographic um, business, you know, unique photo, which is yeah. what it was called. And you're in it for nearly 30 years. Obviously, you know, you're at a point there where you're talking about using film and um, Kodak, you know, lost the opportunity to reimagine in the late 1990s. And were really, you know, they lost, they missed the boat of take going on to the digital camera world quickly. I have a great, I have a great anecdote about that. And in fact, as a professional speaker, I give a talk on business re reimagination. And I actually use the Kodak example, because what's very interesting about Kodak was that they had 80 something percent of the film market. They were, you know, fortune top 10 company, billions and billions of dollars back then. And they invented the digital sensor and the digital camera. They invented it. It's their invention, their yes. patent, their invention. And they were afraid to cannibalize their existing profit cow, that film business. Now, I'm going to tell you a true story. I was in the office of the CEO of the Eastman Kodak Company. I won't say exactly what year because I don't want to nail down that one CEO because uh, they had a few over the early, between 19, late 90s and let's say 2010. And they showed us what they anticipated was the decline of film over the next 20 years. And so it was this nice gradual slope, okay? Yeah, well, that's not what happened. And basically in 2007, 2008, film went like like that. And they just did not adapt to it. and and they, de they declared bankruptcy in 2012. But there's another really interesting aspect of this that I'll share that I think is a really good share, is that Kodak had something called the Kodak Gallery. And they had gotten users to put up millions of photographs in this Kodak Gallery. And they were building this online presence, but they had no imagination of what to do with this thing. And when they ended up going bankrupt, they ended up selling this thing, which had, I don't know, 50 million users, like a crazy amount of users to Shutterfly for like 20, $25 million, some very small, relatively small amount of money. Literally three months to the day that they went bankrupt and sold that division off, a small startup, which had about half as many users, third as many users, half as many p images online, received a billion dollar purchase price from Facebook and that was Instagram. So it was sort of this in this few months period was a flip from the old to the new and strictly that could have been Kodak's business. And so the lesson from all of this is that reimagination of your business has to occur when you're at your peak, right? When you're doing your best, that's when you need to look at your business and say, Oh my gosh. Okay. We're cruising. We can't just cruise, you know, on cruise control. We need to immediately think of what's the next thing. And that's the lesson, which is true in essentially every business. And if you don't do it, you're just waiting for the end. And it's a sigmoid curve um, and, and really powerful. And I know I was talking to 
a CEO at the beginning of this year about the same thing. They were in a position where everything's going really smooth. And, you know, they were talking about, you know, this year being a very relaxed and easy year. And I was like, I sent them an email afterwards and said, you are at your most vulnerable right now. This is time where you need to reimagine or not, not quite in those words, but it's, you know, you need to go that next level because otherwise you're going to start the decline and uh, COVID hit two months later and they were, they were ready to reimagine very fast and are extremely um, big success yeah. story here at the moment. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously the right advice. You know, I, I consult businesses. I even do it sometimes now. And you sit there and they say, you know, we're doing really well. We're up like three or 4% this year. And I'm looking at them. I'm like, the, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything because if the market swings, that three or four percent will be gone along with another fifty percent. Yeah. What's your next business? What's your next step? What are you what are you doing? What else can you do? Push, 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 right? That's part of being a leader, you know, is is always pushing forward. What's the next thing? You know, I think it's true. You know, we talked a little before we got on. I think that's also true in athletics, right? There's the parallel, is that the world class athletes when they reach a certain level, they then look for the next level. They're never satisfied at the level that they're at. And I think that that axiom defines the most successful people walking the earth. Yeah, I like it. So you're talking about unique photo there. You talked about how you were reimagining the way that camera stores, um, that experience in here. Can you talk a little bit about how you developed that and what, it was, what was unique about it? Yeah. Um, so if I go back to, let's say the late nineties, early two thousands, what happened was as digital came into the marketplace, the camera store model and basically the small store model was based on the film concept, which is one visit to the store to buy film, one visit to come back to process the pictures and another visit to pick up your pictures. So with every sort of transaction is three, right? There's threes and it's, and it's, you know, you keep coming back for that as digital product came available. It's a one time into the store and digital product became ubiquitous. You could buy it anywhere. The internet came about the big box stores, you know, in, in the United States, that's the Walmarts and the targets and so on started opening up the big uh, pharmacy chain started buying up the little pharmacies where a lot of these small uh, photo supplies were sold through and the model of retail which was based on having a piece of equipment or having a reusable making people drive to your store and come in and buy it was just not working because there were just too many other experiences out there and our customers at that time were those small stores we were a b2b business we were partially B2C because we had switched to selling photographers. That was sort of the first reimagination that was done. But when those small stores started going out of business and essentially all the camera stores in our area went out of business, I'm like, there's got to be a way to run a camera store and still get people to drive there. And what it came down to was changing the retail experience. So up until that point, an electronic store, camera store, electronic store, whatever you want to call it, was you walk in. There was salespeople behind the counter, the merchandise is up on the wall, and you're, they're trying to get as much money from you as you can, trying to get you a piece of box and get you out of the store. And that, there's just nothing special about that. So I sat there kind of fulminating in my office when we had this big distribution company, no store at that time. And I said, okay, there needs to be an experience. There has to be a reason 
to get people into the store. And so I analyzed digital photography. And one of the things I realized about digital photography was that it was a lot like operating a computer, operating a digital camera. And people just didn't know how to do it. It, it was complicated. Not only did you have to know the art of photography, f-stop and apertures and film and speeds and all of that stuff, you also have to know how to work the computer. And so I said, we're going to teach photography. So we're going to open a store and we're going to base it on the joy of photography and the learning experience around photography. And not only that, we're going to make a store that's beautiful. So the store looks really good. It's not like this little store, there's merchandise all over the place. The salespeople are behind the counters. So I created this store, which was visually, aesthetically beautiful. It was very modern. And all the people that worked in my store were photographers. They weren't salespeople, they were photographers. We taught photography, I opened the photography school in the store. And so we started to create that experience that it was around the joy of photography. When people would come in, we wouldn't try to sell them a camera. We would teach them about photography and help them take better pictures. Our slogan was create better pictures. We ended up having the largest photography program in the country, education program, called it the Unique University. It drove a thousand people a month through our store, one store, one location, sometimes more. I used to have these massive events. The most famous photographers in the world would come through and teach. We had our own teaching school, beginners to professionals, and it created this environment in the store that was about learning. The, the store was an experience. It was like a photography journey. And not only that, when you're in that position where you're not trying to sell people, you're teaching them, your relationship with the customer completely changes. It's a trust relationship. If they're trying to take their money, everybody knows how to deal with that. But if you're teaching them something, they believe in you. And it changed the entire dynamic of the camera retail business. Essentially, every camera store that operates today operates with an education program and tries to create that environment in the store. And it basically revolutionized the way camera stores operated. And that was it. And we ended up going from no camera store in 2007. We opened, I think, in 2008, right when the market crashed. It was a really bad time. By 2012 or 13, we had the third largest single location store in the country, picked retail store of the year and all sorts, did all sorts of stuff. I got all sorts of crystal trophies for doing all the right things in the industry and all of that stuff that happened. But most importantly, it's really a lesson in reimagination and reimagination of an old concept, right? So camera store is an old, old concept, but there's always a way to figure out how to make that thing completely different. So that's it. The reimagination was about a retail experience, changing the dynamic of the experience to something that would draw people in. What I liked about that is you, you took one simple idea, but created a whole ecosystem around you. And I think that it's a really invaluable way to, to stand out from the crowd and to really grow your connection with people. It's not about how many people like you, it's about how many people love you. And so I really enjoyed uh, the way that you're able to bring that together. Now, while you're building that business from a million dollars a year to a hundred million dollars of sales, your first child comes along. How did how did starting a family and have a and having your first child change the way that you were leading Unique Photo? So, in my case, I have a pretty unusual circumstance. And that's like my book over there, <laughs> Leader of the Pack, really talks a lot about this. So I was married very early. Um, uh, I was not a very mature kind of guy, probably married too early. 
but I ended up having not just one child. I had five children very, very close together. And in my case, before anything, I could even realize what happened. The mother of my five kids left us. So I was doing all of this as a single dad of five kids. She actually left us when my youngest was, uh, my oldest was eight years old and my youngest was 18 months. They still had one in diapers. I was left sort of clueless. It's a whole story. My whole book is about my being clueless about half of my life and how I figured my way out of being clueless. So it was a crazy circumstance. But, you know, I have a saying that God never gives you more than you can handle, though. At the time, I thought it was more than I can handle. And I ended up integrating the concept of running a family and running a business. And in the end, through a lot of, you know, there's a reason I'm bald, and it was going through this process. <laughs> um, so in the end, I learned to be a better parent, and I learned to be a better leader by taking principles at home and applying them at work to my staff and taking things and organizational principles that I learned at work and bringing them home and kind of figuring it all out together. But it was a few years, a very, very difficult period of time, you know, very, very difficult. Little children trying to care for them and figuring out how to be a father, a real father, and trying to deal with my own fears and running a business that was near failure many, many times, you know, because of the nature of the industry and having to reimagine. So it was crazy times. But in the end, when I look back on it, I think that being a parent at that time forced me to mature and forced me to do what it takes because we love our children and we want them to be successful. And, you know, there were times, and, and I think this is at the heart of your question, is that there were times when I think that if I had been a single guy, no family, no wife, no nothing, I might not have had the drive to work those hours and do whatever it took to make my business successful. It may have failed because I might have been just like, okay, we'll let it go. We'll do something else. But I had five kids to feed and, you know, take care of and figure out. And a failure just wasn't an option. And I think that always has been my motto. And one of the things, you know, my personal slogan is how badly do you want it? You just ask yourself that. How bad do you want it? Look at my little kids. They're looking at me. They're like, dad, what's next? Fix this, right? <laughs> We're hungry. And, you know, you're with a business that's failing. So the business can't fail. You can't let it fail. So I think that in the end, I think that fatherhood, in my case, single fatherhood, was ultimately the most important driving factor in me finding success in my business. Yeah. And, and so for you, you know, what, are, what sort of elements did it teach you that helped you become a bit leader? Was it time management? Was it having a single focus? Or what? What did you find in that process? Yes and yes. So organization, I give a seminar on organization because when you're trying to do all of this, you better be organized. I always laugh. I had the original Palm Pilot. Does any, I don't know if your audience knows what the hell that is. And this was revolutionary because I would put in there and I would put all the kids, you know, friends, parents in there and the teachers in there and the address book. And you'd have the CEO of Kodak in there and the CEO of this and this business person. And it would all be mixed together and my schedule would be all mixed together. And I just became crazy organized. Literally, the, the second the cloud became available, I started putting stuff in the cloud so I had access to my data. And I built this method, which actually, it's literally the number one thing that I do when I coach other people. I coach other CEOs, which is what I do. I still do it to this day. Or I consult on businesses when I have time, because I'm running my own company now, of course. Um, 
is organization is how to take because time you know when you're organized really well that's how you manage your time and then you know to the flip side not just organization obviously it was just drive you know you just like i said you just you have to make it work and then there's another thing too which i think all successful leaders have is that you just not failure you're just not going to accept it it's just not this is not this is not happening this is as simple as that and if you believe that failure is not going to happen, you are going to do everything that it can. Carry it on your shoulder. Will it? Will it? Pray. Go to church. Go to temple. Whatever it is you do, you know, slam your fist. Work twenty. Whatever. If you want it badly enough, you're going to make it happen. And I think that's really what happened to me. It was a combination of organization, love of my children, and just drive of wanting to be successful. Now I'm in a situation now. I sold. I sold that business. I went out, I speak, I do lots of things. I didn't have to take a new company. In fact, I took a company that's a startup. And this startup, I believe, is a big idea. You know, we're a luxury marketplace. I believe we're going to be like the next big thing. And they're not going to fail. I'm going to do everything that I possibly can to make this work. So I think that drive and sort of that concept of failure not being an option for whatever you can find within you, right? Whatever it is that drives you to get there, do it. Maybe you just don't want to be embarrassed by failure. That's fine. Or maybe you just, you know, you want to be the best in the industry, or maybe you want to, you know, own uh, three homes or whatever it is that you want to do. You find that thing and you just say, I want that and nothing is going to stop you. Simple as that. Talking about I, I want it and nothing's going to stop you. Writing a book that uh, can throw its own challenges, especially that last 20% to get it all completed for the publishers. What leader of the pack, is that more about leading, you know, being a single dad and leading a young family? Or is it about leading an organization? Or is it leading your life or all three of the above? It's all of the above, but it's really about how to get yourself out of trouble and how we're all human and we all, you know, I don't want to come across in this interview as being like arrogant and I always had success. I spent most of my life suffering and going through very, very difficult times. And it's only now, you know, I kind of figured my way out of it. And I think anybody who's gone through a very, very difficult time in their life or is going through a difficult time will value the book. It's written as a memoir, but it was actually a number one bestseller in self-help books. So this is for anybody who wants to learn the lesson of leadership and learn how to extricate yourself from the most difficult problems we all face in our life. You know, and I'm very, very honest and open in that book about the many, many, many stupid things that I do. I mean, if you read the reviews, I have, I don't know, 130 or 45 star reviews on the book. And people write me, I literally got a letter today from someone who was another single dad and he talked about how the book just was so influential for him. It was so important, it changed his life. I get from moms, I get from other CEOs, write me and say, you know, after reading your book, I know I'm not trying hard enough or I'm not doing this or I'm not doing that. And so for me, that's, that's why I wrote the book. Because as you know, you do not write books to get rich. Because when you count the number of hours that you put in the book, you know, you might, I'm sorry, to, this is not advertisement, but you might be better off working for a Starbucks, you know, it comes with free health, comes with health insurance. So um, <laughs> it's not what it's about. You know, your book's your calling card, obviously, you know, the businesses, 
that we're in. You know, you use a book as a calling card. But for me, it's most rewarding because the book, I, people have written me over and over and over again how it's helped them in their life. And to me, that's the big payback. You know, they get to learn a little bit from my own suffering and the problems that I have, which means, which makes it all kind of good. And actually, um, the woman I'm married to now actually read my book and she was like blown away. It actually changed her life. And that's how we ended up coming together. You'd been the, you know, you've been with uh, Unique Photo for 28, 30 years. What was the defining moment for you to go, you know what, it's time to sell. I'm ready to move on in life. I love that question because for me, I always need to achieve. And I felt the nature of the photography business. I saw what was coming with cell phones and cell phone photography. I saw what was happening in the industry. I had taken my store and my business to what I thought was the peak. Now, I could maybe have tried to reinvent that business again, but I had reached that I was the photo industry person of the year and our store was picked best store of the year and all sorts of really good things. So I felt like going out on top was the way to do it. I also felt that the business was at its peak. I made an intellectual decision that I thought it was we were I was getting out at the peak. So it was also a financial decision about it, but I had enough. I needed to go conquer something else. And I knew when I sold that business that I was going to have to restart again. And what do I mean by that? In other words, I was kind of big man in the photo industry. Everybody knew me, you know, you're the big guy, you did this. I was on national TV as photography expert, a spokesperson, all of this. The day I sold that business, I exited the photo industry. And nobody, like I'm running a startup now, we're trying to get funding for our startup, right? And if you've ever run a startup, I mean, we're pretty well funded, but you need, we need the big funding in order to do it. You know, I speak to some 20 something year old at some venture capital firm, you know, he's like, nah, don't go away. Doesn't answer my emails, doesn't this. I'm like nobody again, <laughs> not quite nobody, <laughs> but you understand, I understand I got CEO, I got all of this stuff going on behind me, but ultimately I'm starting to get, and I love the challenge. I love starting from that to be able to build something and climb that mountain again. It's like the mountain climber, I guess. You know, mountain climber, they climb one mountain. It's like they're not done. As soon as they get down and they recover, they're like, next mountain. And I think that's really human nature for people who want to be successful is you're always looking for a mountain, always. And I think I'll do that, you know, until I can't do it anymore. It's really interesting point you bring up there around your identity and we see this a lot with athletes. Uh, athletes have this identity as a, a high-performing athlete. You know, they might be in the media. You know, they're achieving on a world stage. As soon as their day is done, whether it be injury or they retire, for most of them, they have zero identity again. They start at square one. So, you know, for you, looking back at your career, if you know, when you look at it from an identity point of view, is it how important is it to separate your your personal identity, who you really are. So you're Matt Sweetwood versus the uh, photo person of the year identity. Yeah, I think that if you don't have that built into you, you're going to really suffer. And, you know, in American football here, one of the real tragedies in the NFL, National Football League here, is the incredibly high suicide rate that exists. It's actually very, very sad, very painful. It's one of those things they suppress 
you know, they don't like to talk about it because it's not good for marketing. But NFL players, because they're in the limelight, they're under such, they're in combat, you know, they're stars. The second their knee gets busted and they're gone, they're like, that's it. Nobody cares. Nobody wants them. They can show up for an old timers game once a year, you know, whatever. People don't recognize them anymore and they really suffer. And I think it's because they're not taught other skills. They're not taught those life skills somewhere along the way and they traded only off their athletics. In my case, I think the fact that I had to raise those kids on my own and I had to man up, which is what I almost titled my book, by the way, Man Up. Um, I had to man up. It built character in me. If I, I survived and those strengths allow you to get through those areas where you're no longer the star anymore. So unless you develop your character along the way and those characters are artificially propped up, look, in today's world, you know, we're in this kind of cancel culture mentality. So you could be like the most important person in some area and you could say something that's off and you're gone. That's it. You're just gone. So you better have strength of character. How many journalists or movie people or athletes are gone? They say the wrong thing, gone, off the air. Right? That's it. Their career's over. Gone. So they better have strength of character or they're going to really suffer. So for me, you know, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, I'm okay. It was fun. It was kind of like the day I signed the paper and I sold it. I remember I woke up the next day. I'm like, you're an employee. <laughs> I worked literally every day for 27 years. The, I, the next day I woke up like, you don't have a business. You don't have a job. You're a loser. <laughs> but I was okay. I'm like, you'll, you'll, big, you'll dig your way out of that, right? And, and if you're strong, if you build your character along the way, you, I think that that is the most important trait that you have. And of course, that building of the character is the most important thing you need to pass on to your children, right? You don't want to pass on them this concept. You don't want your kids to see you as a football player. You want your kids to see you as a man and a leader and a father. And those are the character traits that we want to build in ourselves. And those are the character traits that will help you and obviously help your future generations. Yeah, it's really important that it's not... Um, I am a photographer person of the year. My name is Matt Sweetwood. It's actually, I am Matt Sweetwood. I am photographer of the year. So it's been able to really, you know, you are the identity, you are the unique person. Talking about uniqueness, you have a company that you're working, uh, that you start up, the LuxNow, which is, you know, discovering the world's largest luxury assets sharing marketplace. Fascinating. It's, it's a concept that to me, uh, it has, takes the the idea of an Airbnb and puts it into the luxury world. Why did you first get involved with LuxNow? And what is the uniqueness, the real uniqueness of that business? Yeah, so I, I had spent most of my life, um, almost all of it, within about 20 miles of New York City. And I was at a point in my life where it was just my consulting business. I could take that any place. My speaking business, I could take that any place. I wanted, after I sold my business, which was in New Jersey, wanted to spend a few years in New York City, sort of have that experience. I, of course, look like a genius now because I moved out about a year ago and things have not gone well there in the last yeah. six months. So I look really smart for moving out there. I said, I'm going to go someplace different. I moved to Florida. I said, I literally just said, that's where I'm going. I moved there, it's really good taxes, really good weather, really good golf weather here. Um, so I moved here and then I just started to do some networking. 
And I hooked up with these guys who had founded this company, LuxNow. They were looking for somebody to operate the company. And I really loved the concept. The company wasn't operating in the best possible way. Of course, that's my expertise. But the concept was amazing. And, the, and I couldn't actually believe that nobody else was doing it. And that concept is luxury only. So we do homes, homes and condos. We do yachts, not boats, yachts. And we do autos and exotic and luxury autos, all three together. The unique thing that we do is all three together in one marketplace. And we do it through an app. And the problem that we're solving, right? This is the buzzword for startup. What problem are you solving? The problem we're solving is there's no easy and convenient access to luxury no matter where you go. If you show up, if you get yourself to New York and you say to yourself, I want to rent a Range Rover for the day, good luck. Go, go try to find how to do that. You show up in Miami, you want to stay in a very nice home. You don't want to stay in one of the hotels in here, boom, 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 all night long. You want to stay in a nice house. You want to rent a yacht. You want to drive around in a Lamborghini. Maybe you're there on your wedding anniversary or you're there to find the woman who will be there for the wedding anniversary and you want to drive around and try, just try to do that. It's like the Wild West. There's no one way to do it. You never know who's going to deliver what. You can't find it. So there's no product out there that did that. And I thought this was amazing that nobody touched this. And they had created this idea and we've now implemented. We have a working app, really working app. We have, om we have almost $800 million on platform already of assets listed on platform. We're doing business in Miami, New York, and Los Angeles. Um, and it's a really big idea. Now, COVID obviously has been very impactful for us because hospitality and travel are the most affected thing. But, you know, we run the company very efficiently. So we'll obviously, you know, get through to the other side of this. But for me, it was the big idea. It also, and this is a very important point, is that what I did in the camera business was I treated the camera business like a luxury business, not like a commodity business. And for me, this is my sweet spot. Luxury is kind of my sweet spot. And it was very natural for me to walk into another business that was luxury focused, even though it's completely different. You know, one is a brick and mortar warehouse and store and you're selling hard goods. And this is a service. This is a marketplace. But that luxury concept and the way you market and the way you go to you actually go to market are very similar mindsets. And for me, I could have I had opportunity to take those normal jobs, you know, at a company, but I wanted to do something that could go big. And this was really an opportunity, you know, a challenge where I can climb that mountain again and make something that everybody will hear about. So you talked about just briefly there around COVID and how that's affecting, you know, how that affected the business. You know, for you, when uh, there was a sign that things were going to go into lockdown and restrictions were going to come into place and that COVID was something really serious, what was your first reaction as a leader? Uh, my first reaction comes from having gone through crisis after crisis after crisis, which is detailed in, in gory detail in that leader of the pack book, is I always assume the worst and prepare for it. So if you remember, we'll go in the, in the States here, back in the beginning of May is when people started talking about maybe we're going to have to lock people down. They didn't call it lockdown. You know, we're going to have to stay at home. We're going to have this. And I was like, I have a bad feeling about this. 
we need to be prepared. I immediately went out and put our company in slow mode. I walked out of our lease. I sent everybody home. We set everybody up working from home. We prepared expense-wise and everything for a shutdown. And I was way ahead of everybody. Of course, here in April and May, uh, March, April, May, were very, very slow. But I look like a genius. If you look at our balance sheet, we made a profit the last two months. Not because we did a lot of sales. We did some. We did some bookings. But because we put our expenses really low and we were prepared for it. And the thing I've always learned is the biggest mistake that are made as leaders, and we'll go back to the Kodak example we started, is not acting. You very rarely make a mistake by acting. And not to say that you won't, you do sometimes. So when you're sort of sitting there, should I do something or shouldn't I do something? I'm gonna tell you 9.5 out of 10 times, it's the should I and you do it. And for me, it was just sort of a reflex, instant reflex. Uh-oh, go do something. Cause look, I can always put it back together. If nothing happened a month or two, we'd work from home, we'd be at a lower expense. I, I let a few outside people sort of let them go. I did a bunch of things to reduce our expenses. I can always put it back, right? Boom, 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 put it back. It's all good. But in the meanwhile, we sur were surviving as a result of that. So that's really the lesson there. And, and it's a lesson that I've talked about many times, which is always act. Sitting there, hoping it's going to get better, praying it's going to get better, hoping that it won't happen is never the right thing. Always act in advance. You're better off going back than sort of reacting late. And, and I think that's it's a really important point. And we've seen that, you know, with probably the 10% of businesses worldwide that have actually thrived during this uh, situation, or not, not so much thrive, but have put themselves in a stable position at least, are those that have taken that, that authoritative style leadership, have acted quickly, provided a clear direction of where they're going. Whether it's right or wrong doesn't matter. As long as you provide clear direction, it calms people because there is at least some certainty about what steps we're taking next. And I think that is so important. Those that hesitated, as we always say, hesitate, you lose. And it is kind of what happened is they, they stood back and they let overwhelm and they let uncertainty take over their life. And they weren't actually doing anything. And that is where the mistakes happen, right? Is when you're not actually taking action. So Sorry. yeah, I just think that inaction is wrong. 0.5 out of, is it wrong 9.5 out of 10 times? Simple as that. Yeah. You know, sometimes you take an action and uh-oh, but it's usually easier to come back from that than when you don't take action. It's almost always the case. Almost always the case. Because you have momentum, right? Inaction causes a stall, a slow. You know, so it's, you, <laughs> this is like a ridiculous analogy, but it just somehow seems fitting. You know, you're in this big boat right? It's easier to turn a boat if you're going in the wrong direction, if you're moving, than if the boat is stationary. It's, you know, it's, I don't know why I use that analogy. It's dumb, it's dumb analogy, but the, the, the illustration is really the point, and that's true of a business. So if the business has momentum, even if the momentum is in the wrong direction, it's easier to guide it back into the right direction than when it's stalled. Mm, very good. Need momentum to change direction. I really like that one. Now, in in the world right now, you know, 2020 for a lot of people at the beginning was like, yes, this is going to be an amazing year. It's all 2020. Yay, let's go. And, and it's in some ways it's been a big reset year for people. But in other ways, it's a it's a real big disruption of 
of the way we do business, of the way we think about certain things. Um, we've got a lot of elections happening around the world in different countries. For you, um, you know, because I live in Australia and you're looking at America right now, there seems to be lots of um, disruption going on in different aspects. You know, leading up to a political campaign, you know, election year, what is the mood and feel in America at the moment? It's extremely polarized. Um, there's a saying here that everything that happens in an election year is related to the election, whether you think it's related to the election or not. Everything that happens. So one could argue that COVID is related to the re related to the election, um, and actually, it, quite frankly, it is. Um, ultimately, how that was handled and how people's perceptions of how that was handled and why it happened well it is related to the election. And in this country, there's definitely a fight. There's a left versus right war going on. Some people call it, I've used this term, we're almost at civil war here in this country. There's very few people, very small amount of people that sit in the middle. It's created a lot of acrimony, a lot of bitterness, and that kind of thing detracts from growth. It detracts from creation. And so to me, that's the ultimately the saddest aspect of all of this is that while you're hating on people and while you're angry at them and while you're in civil war, there's much less creation and growth and things going on that need to happen. So I, 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 I'm looking forward to the election being over and COVID being over. Unfortunately, this is going to be the rest of the year. So I think in some respects, there won't be a recovery on many levels, including psychological levels until 2021. I just think that's the nature of it so the atmosphere here is a little bit depressed it's very um it's bitter it's one side against the other i've actually never seen it in my life this bad but there's a power play i mean you know in business in life and in business i have an expression i always say when someone says it's not about the money it's about the money, money. and in politics when someone says it's not about the power it's about racism it's about covid it's about this it's, it's not about any of that it's about power and so what's really going on is a fight for a bunch of people on both sides that really want power are willing to do anything to get power are doing it to each other and basically the people are caught in the middle that's the best way i can put it yeah. now, now you've lived a, a very busy lifestyle but you talked about playing golf there so how do you ensure that you look after your your body, so you have you become a high performing leader, and you um, you allow yourself to free your mind. So, what sort of things do you put into your 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 daily or weekly life that allow you to recharge and recover? Um, love that question too, because I give a talk called "The Principles of Personal Responsibility." It's my keynote talk that I give, and I think number five of the ten principles of personal responsibility is being physically strong and in good health because physical strength is the foundation for mental and emotional strength. If you're physically weak, you make poor mental decisions, you're more emotional about those decisions and things go really wrong for you. I always use it if you use a sport and sports is the best example. You have two evenly matched teams playing, it doesn't matter the sport, two evenly matched teams playing each other, right? One team tires before the other, they physically weaken. They don't get outplayed right away. That's not what happens. They make mental mistakes. They commit a penalty. They forget the play. They do something stupid on the field, and slowly the game tilts in their direction. Same thing's true in business. 
So for me, I've always put a priority on that. I talk about it in my book, how I let myself get in a very, very bad physical condition. And as a result, I lost my self-confidence. I lost my mojo. I lost my strength. And I, there would have been no way I would have been able to run a business with 100 employees and take care of five kids and deal with all of that craziness if I didn't put myself in shape. So today, I actually make it a priority. I, I had a very stressful day yesterday, like abnormally stressful. I actually today said, you know what I'm going to do? I actually grabbed my wife. And we went and we hit golf balls for two hours and I timed it. So I got back just in time to be on your amazing show. Um, but I did that because it's an amazing stress relief. I, in COVID time, right? I'm a big gym guy. I go to the gym. I work out all the time. It's difficult to do. So I got talked into doing Pilates off the TV and it's like the best thing. I used to make fun of people that do. I'm from New Jersey. Guys from Jersey don't do Pilates, right? <laughs> if you tell your buddies you do Pilates, they beat you up. Okay. They're like, what's wrong with you? And they beat you up. Um, but I learned, I started doing Pilates. And so I try to do something physical every day. I wear this Fitbit and my try to get 11,000 steps every day. Sometimes that's walking the dog. Sometimes when I'm done, I get up, like I'll get up from this. I'll go take a walk. I'll go do something. I try to keep myself in motion all the time. And so I, and I, cause I believe in that principle that physical strength, physical conditioning is the foundation for mental, emotional strength. So for me, it's always a priority. I always find a way to stop what I'm doing and make myself do it. And believe me, half the time I don't feel like it, but you just got to do it. And it makes you a better business person, better leader, better everything. So make physical conditioning a priority. It'll make you money. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Did something. It was, it was actually um, skiing. Okay. So uh, my wife, who happens to be from a place where they ski at birth, okay, made me go skiing. Now, I'm a person that likes to have sneakers on his feet on the ground at all times all times okay if it's not sneakers on the ground i'm not a happy guy so i went skiing and for me it was an amazing experience doing something like that for the first time to learn your body to sort of be super uncomfortable out of your comfort zone because if you never if you've not done that as a child when you get on those things it's like your brain hasn't been taught the muscle how to control the muscles and everything. So as an older person, you know, middle-aged older person doing that, it's really an amazing experience that you learn a lot about yourself because you have to regain your own, your own self-confidence. You know, the first time you get in, what do you do? You fall down. You get on the ski lift, you fall off the chair the first time you get off the ski lift, right? Because, and there's little kids, you know, like eight years old that are like skiing on one ski, you know, doing flips in the air. And you're like, you know, wobbling and stuff like that. So it's a really good experience to do that every once in a while because you learn some humility, you you learn about yourself and you restudy the process of what it takes to learn something. And I think that that is just invaluable. And so when I went to do Pilates, which came after learning, which I had never done before, I was more mentally prepared for that concept 
In other words, of like knowing that my body wasn't going to be in control. It was going to be difficult. It was going to take me time. I was going to be sore as hell in places I didn't know I had and all of those things. So I believe that that's a really great experience. And it reminded me that I need to keep doing that, finding new things and learning them. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Uh, I, I think that is the deepest question which comes from Judaism, which is ultimately why bad things happen to good people. To me, that's the ultimate question, right? Uh -huh. Why are, I mean, look, why my wife left and left my kids and why we had to suffer through all of that. I can maybe see that now. It made us all stronger and better and didn't feel like it at the time. But, you know, a lot of bad things happen in this world and I, I don't quite understand why that has to be that way. But that's the one question that God made it so that we wouldn't understand. So I went for the big one, okay? <laughs> because the answer to that question is ultimately probably the key to why everything happens. Very good question. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Uh, it's waking up every day and looking forward to the day, to the challenges of the day. It's momentum. It's to make sure that every day, I'm going to use that term that we used before, every single day you have momentum where you're getting up and saying, I'm going to accomplish all these things today. And of course, going to bed at night knowing that you accomplished at least most of them. And that doesn't always have to be about work. Okay. Like I got up today and I knew because I had a bad day yesterday, I was going to hit the golf ball. And I had watched a video on how to do something chipping around the green. It was a really interesting video, how you take a sand wedge and you turn it in a little bit and you position yourself and you punch it. And it's a really good method for getting out of sort of rough close to the green. I said, I'm going to try that today and I'm going to do it. And it was really easy and it really is a great addition to the game. And so I feel like I accomplished something really like cool. <laughs> and I'm going to go play with my bud tomorrow and I'm going to use this technique and maybe I'll win a hole or two extra because of it. So, but I'm just using that as an example. Like every day you try to have something, do something better, accomplish something. I just accomplish a few things at work too, of course, along the way. But it's always that kind of, keeping yourself busy, momentum, always accomplishing things. That to me is, is living the big life. That's what it's about. Matt, you've shared so many great gems and opportunities and insights and, and lessons that you can learn yourself. So how, pe how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you if they wish to? Um, easy. I was an early adopter of social media. So M Sweetwood, Matt M for Matt and Sweetwood, M Sweetwood everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. My website is msweetwood.com. You can reach out to me anywhere. And I love being on big podcasts like this, big shows like this, because audience writes me and I love writing them back. So if you reach out to me, I'll always do that. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I know you have a business audience. I'm Matt Sweetwood or M Sweetwood, LinkedIn slash M Sweetwood on uh, there. Please connect with me. I'm happy to connect with everybody and ask me questions and enjoy and get my book leader of the pack. It'd be good for everybody. <laughs> Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and we can really see why you are the leader of the pack and you know, getting an insight into the lessons you've learned and the ways that you have been able to thrive in the business world through the ups and downs. 
and ensuring you always have momentum so that you can keep reimagining the business or your life and how you can do it better and move with the current, so to speak. You know, the currents are always flowing and moving and it's if you fight against them, it's quite difficult. But if you go with them and reimagine how it can, things can look, you can really make some positive differences in life. I love the fact that you uh, use exercise as a really important facet to ensure that the mind is working well and that you are and your attention is in the right space and just really appreciate your, your vulnerability to share what you've learned and how you've overcome that so other people can prosper in their lives as well. So Matt, thank you very much today. Once again, absolute pleasure and I look forward to hearing that your golf handicap is dropping over the next few weeks. We're going to work at it. And Craig, thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed the interview today and I, I hope the audience enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to a great conversation with Max Sweetwood, reimagining business on the Active CEO podcast. If you are not interesting, no one will be interested. If you are not interesting, no one will be interested. It's so important when you come into a conversation, you're doing a video, you might be writing an article, you're sending an email, you're doing a pitch. If you are not interesting, people won't be interested. It's so important to think about how you bring energy, you think about the performance of how you're going to deliver it, what is your intention, how do you create emotion in the person that you are speaking with or the audience that you're speaking to. So important as a leader. You must be interesting if you want people to take action. Now, if you need assistance in helping you become more interesting and more engaging and more entertaining and creating more emotion, then please get in touch with me at craigjohns.com.au or you can email me at craig at energy2perform.com. Thank you very much for listening today. Really appreciate you joining the conversation. I am Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.